You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. Well, we are in a sermon series called Hold Firm, Getting a Grip on the Confession of Our Faith. And in this series of messages, we are studying some of the foundational principles and key doctrines which guide our faith and practice. And uh, we've said that those key doctrines are clarified, uh, articulated for us in what is called the Baptist faith and message. Now, the foundation for the series is actually found in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse number 9 says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is Paul talking to Titus in a pastoral letter. He's giving him the qualifications for church leadership, for for elders. And he says uh, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And, And it's for this reason. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so uh, we are making every effort to be faithful uh, to that qualification, uh, to that requirement, really, uh, for church leadership. And so if you find yourself this morning cringing maybe a little bit at the thought of doctrinal preaching, um, then remember, uh, doctrinal study uh, gives us a panoramic view of Scripture. It allows us to gain a clear understanding of scriptural teaching on any given subject. And in in its truest form, that's what all preaching is. It's doctrinal in nature. It says this is what we believe based upon the authority of the Word of God. Um, And so keep that in mind. Again, in the original language, the word uh, that's translated doctrine in our English Bibles literally means teaching. It's instruction uh, or that which is taught. And it carries with it the idea of, uh, of a more developed set of truths and practices which are to be learned and followed. Now, just by way of review, last week we looked at Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message, the Scriptures. Uh, The Scriptures, the Word of God, is our foundation. And there were four key words that we we unpacked or we looked at as it relates to our view on Scripture as revealed in the Word of God itself and as given to us by God. And that is the word inspired. We believe that the Word of God is inspired by God. It is literally breathed out by God. And we looked at what that phrase means. Uh, It's inspired by God. That doesn't mean that it's just inspiring. Certainly it is, although there are some sections of Scripture that I would say are not as inspiring as others, perhaps. But it's all inspired by God, breathed out by God. It is also truthful, completely truthful. Uh, which means it's reliable for us, all right? It is completely trustworthy. And in that, we talked about the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God. It can be totally trusted as truthful. And then we said the Word of God is authoritative. Uh, it's more than just good literature. It's more than just a, you know, a collection of nice ideas that, that you know, if we apply them to our lives, then we'll be happy, uh, although that may, that may certainly be the case. But it's much more than that. The Word of God, we believe, is authoritative. It is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And then we said that the Word of God is complete. The canon of Scripture is complete. No one's adding to Scripture today. In fact, we're told clearly that we're not to do that. I, I told the early service this morning at my ordination over 20 years ago now, uh, the, the church that ordained me, they gave me a Bible uh, that was uh, really kind of ahead of its time. Now it's, it's 
fairly common to go to the Christian bookstore and find journaling Bibles that you can you know, journal through and doodle and all that kind of stuff. I, I was given this Bible that it has a page of text and then a blank page, and then a page of text and a blank page all the way through. I mean, it's about that thick. And so as a result, I rarely carry it or use it. But um, the, the pastor who was the, the pastor of the church at the time when they ordained me, he said, now, just to be clear, we're not giving you this because it's your job to add to Scripture, okay? Um, and so again, we, we would say, that, you know, be very cautious, be very careful. If someone comes along and says, hey, I've got some new, new truth, as if they are adding to uh, the complete canon of Scripture, uh, beware of that. And so Scripture is God's inspired and completed revelation of himself to humanity. And through the providence and the sovereign direction of God through the ages, he has preserved for us uh, his inerrant and infallible word. So the, the Bible that we have is the complete canon or the catalog of books that he wants us to have. And so then what are we to do with it? You know, what is it we're to do? Well, we're to know it. We're not just to know it, but we're to understand it. And we're not just to know it and understand it, but we are to practice it. We're to put into practice what we come to know and understand. And so that's why I say on a regular basis here, uh, as we gather for worship uh, and we have an encounter together with the Word of God, that's what preaching is, okay, uh, by the Holy Spirit, um, then we don't want to just be better informed. We want to be transformed uh, by the power of God through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. And so this book is transformative uh, in nature as well. Uh, now with that, let's go to Acts chapter 17 this morning as we look at Article 2. Now, I, this is the first time in my entire ministry that I've ever preached a sermon entitled God. Okay, and that's because simply I'm following the articles of the Baptist faith and message really. Now, sometimes pastors will facetiously say when people ask them during the week, hey, what are you preaching on Sunday? We'll go, God, you know, Jesus. <laughs> uh, certainly, man, everything drives us back to those things and to, to the subject of who God is and, and who God is in Christ and what all of that means for us. But truly, I can say today, I'm preaching on God. Now, preaching is always a daunting task. I mean, I find myself weekly <laughs> humbled uh, by the privilege and the opportunity and the responsibility that is mine to proclaim and preach the Word of God. But you talk about preaching the subject God in about 30 minutes. Um, that's like climbing Mount Everest, all right? Uh, it, this is, it, don't, don't feel like you're going to go away with a, a full and complete picture uh, of all that God is and who God is and how he relates to us. We're going to do our best to unpack this uh, this morning. What we find here in Acts chapter 17, of course, is the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. It's one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Paul is, uh, is, is really preaching an, an apologetic-type message. Now, again, that doesn't mean that in any way we apologize for what we believe. It's to give a defense for the faith, uh, which is one of the reasons that we should study doctrine. I think it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. And not only that, but that we can defend what we believe and why we believe it. And so we see that here with the Apostle Paul. If you'll pick it up with me in verse number 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, if you could, you, you could picture Paul where he is there at the Areopagus in Athens. He's got this, you know, these, these people who he's already saying here are very religious. And, but when you really think about it, you could say very much the same thing today in the 21st century in Dallas. I mean, you could say, men of Dallas, I perceive that you are very religious. The reason you could say that is because you see evidence of it all around us. 
not just in the form of church buildings, but you, but you see the, the idolatry, the religiosity of the world in which we live, the things that man worships. Many times it's self-worship. Sometimes it's the worship of materialism and those sorts of things. But we see images of that all around us all the time. Uh, and so this, this is a message for us today as well. Uh, Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul recognizes that there's some ignorance here. Okay, and so he, he, wants to, he wants to fill them in. Okay, he wants to introduce them to the one and only true and living God. And so he goes, this I proclaim to you. And that's where he says in verse number 24, notice the language here, the God, the God who made the world and everything in it. That sets apart the God that he's talking about, right? Sets him apart as completely different other than the, these other gods that these Athenians would have been very familiar with. He has the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now you can just imagine him just, I mean, doing this, you know, pointing. Here we are in the midst of this, okay? Uh, he does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. You do know that God has need of nothing, right? If we're talking about God, God doesn't ever need anything. Now, we can get up sometimes you know, in the morning and think, man, I, I need a cup of coffee. Until I get my cup of coffee, I can't do stuff. You know? Or I, I need a nap, or I need rest. Or, I, I need, I, God has need of nothing. Okay? And so uh, Paul's making that clear. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, he's setting the one and tr only true and living God apart from all the others. And he made from one man, talking about Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse number 29 says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, he's, he's distinguishing the one and only true and living God from anything that man could fashion or form. Or create with his hands, okay? Now, that's not the God that, that Paul's talking about here. And then he goes on to say in verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a response. And we're going to talk about that some more in just a few moments. To repent, why? Because in verse 31, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man... Okay, that's a reference to, 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 to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so here Paul does this amazing job of setting apart and distinguishing the one and only true and living God from all other gods, all other deities, all, all other, uh, any other claims uh, to, to that title. Now, Here's the thing, much like the statement that we made last week as it relates to the Scriptures, people would say, well, why can't we just say we believe the Bible? Why can't that be enough? 
I mean, wouldn't that just cut down on so much division? If we could all just say we believe the Bible. Well, again, we said last week that there's some pretty crazy people out there who would say they believe the Bible. Uh, but when they say they believe the Bible, they don't mean the same thing that we say when, when we say we believe the Bible. Well, in the same way, uh, when we say that we believe in God, and other people say they believe in God, we don't mean the same thing. Okay, In fact, we live in a very pluralistic world. Okay, You've got a lot of people out there saying, well, the, the God that I envision, the God that I see, when I say I believe in God, this is what I mean, this is what I... In fact, you could, you could ask the average person in America. In fact, they tell us that still over 90-some percent of people in America would say they believe in God. All right? So the atheists aren't making a whole lot of headway, even the new atheists. They're really not. But the problem with that is what do people mean when they say, I believe in God? Now, some people view God like, kind of like they view the comforter on their bed. Okay, I, I, I like the fact that God is there to keep me comfortable, uh, to keep me warm when I'm cold, uh, to you know, kind of take care of me when I'm sick kind of thing. Uh, that, that's what God is really consumed with, just keeping me comfortable. Okay, but is that the God of the Bible? Is that a full picture of who God is? God is certainly a God of comfort, but is, but is that all that God is? Some people view God, again, like they might a life preserver. Or, you know, when you're on an airplane, they tell you, hey, in the event that, you know, the, the cabin pressure decreases and there's oxygen masks going to drop down, you're going to put it on. You know, a lot of people, it's like, yeah, I want God hanging around. I, I want to know that he's close enough in the event that I might need him in, in case there's a tragedy or an emergency or a situation. But, but that's kind of how they view God. But is that how God wants to relate to us? Uh, is, is just in a utilitarian sort of way. I want to be able to, to get hold of him if need be. Other than that, I don't really desire to have a relationship with him. Well, I think as we unpack this, we're going to see something very different. Now, Dr. Danny Aiken said this, We do not live in a world where people believe nothing. We find ourselves drowning in a world that believes everything. And I think that's very true. That's why you'll have a lot of people say today who have very differing views of God try to convince you that we're worshiping the same God, when in reality we are not. So there are two big questions. If we're going to really come to a clear understanding of what the Bible says about who God is and how we can relate to him, and does he want to relate to us, two big questions. The first one is obviously this, does God exist? Does God exist? Now, you may be here this morning, and you're still wrestling with that question. Maybe on a regular basis, you're asking, you know, I'm just not real sure. I mean, I'd like to think that God exists, but, you know, I'm I'm just not real sure about that. You've got to ask and answer that question for yourself. Does God exist? And the second question would be this. If God does exist, then what is God like? What is God like? Again, some people view him more like a comforter. Some people view uh, God as sort of a, a cosmic killjoy that is just waiting for people to mess up so that he can, he can pound them into oblivion. Uh, how, how is it that we view God? What is God like? Two big questions that we need to ask and answer this morning. Now, with that in mind, let, let me, uh, let me kind of let's back up just a little bit and let's look at the, the seven major views of God. Okay, there are really seven major views of God. And if you take any of the world religions, uh, even denominations, groups, organ, whatever, you, you can pretty much find in these seven descriptions or, or, or views of God what they believe. In some cases, it's kind of a combination of a couple, sometimes three. It's just a conglomeration. 
And again, that's the problem with just simply saying we believe in God. That can mean a lot of different things. The first view is atheism. Atheism, we're familiar with that word. Atheism. Okay, that's the belief that there is no God, a world without God. Now, I contend that most people who claim to be atheists today, it's not so much that they're convinced there is no God, they don't want there to be a God. And the reason they don't want there to be a God is because if there is a God, then we are somehow accountable to him. All right, so that, that totally changes a person's worldview. If, if your worldview says there is no God, first of all, the Bible describes you as a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right? But, but what does that say about how we all got here? Okay, so you probably then, if you, if you describe yourself as an atheist this morning, then you, you must believe that this all just kind of happened. Okay, somehow the complexities of this world all just kind of happened. And again, I, I don't have enough faith to believe that. When I look just at the human body and I look at a leaf and I look at some insects and I, I look at the complexity of this world and, and, and all that it is, I, I just I, I can't come to this conclusion that there is no God. There, there's no creator behind all this. But that's what atheism says, a world without God. Then there's pantheism. Pantheism said uh, is a world that is God. Okay, a lot of the, bless your heart, some of you hippies from the 60s and 70s, a lot of your generation found some comfort in this because they believed they're one with nature, and so they could go out and what would happen is then they would end up worshiping nature. Okay, God, God is that tree, God is the river, God is the mountains. And, and while Scripture makes it clear that all of God's handiwork in His creation points to God and gives glory to God, we're not to worship the creation over the Creator. That's pantheism. Uh, pantheism is a world that is God. All right, be very careful there. Deism. Deism is the belief that there's a world uh, that is on its own made by God. Okay, that's in its, in its basic form. Okay, it basically says, yeah, God, God created all this, but now he's just kind of removed himself from it all. Okay, he's just out there somewhere on the rim of the universe kind of as a spectator watching all this happen. That's deism. Then there's finite theism. That, that's a world with a finite or a limited God. A finite or a limited God. They, they believe in one God, but they believe that that God is limited. That God is, is finite in his abilities. And we're going to see, you're going to unpack from Scripture here this morning, that that is certainly not the God of the Bible. Then there's panentheism, not to be confused with pantheism. Uh, in fact, this is really kind of a combination of pantheism and, and theism, so pan and theism. Uh, that is a world in God. In other words, events and changes in the universe affect and change God. Okay, And so as the universe then grows and, and, and learns, so to speak, then God also increases in knowledge and being. Okay, as if God doesn't have full and complete knowledge yet. Okay, and so, you know, God's always coming to a better understanding of things. It's ridiculous. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Uh, the Bible says that God is all knowing, He's omniscient. Okay, and so it's not as if one day something's going to occur to God, right? Like things occur to us. You know, like, you ever just like felt like the light came on finally for you on a certain subject or something? It's like, oh, there's some clarity to that. Okay, God never experiences that. God never is like, oh, you know, I just, things kind of became crystal clear to me today as I came to better understand the universe and everything. No, that's, that's essentially panentheism. 
All right, then there's polytheism. Poly means many, right? Polytheism is a world with many gods. Okay, and you can quickly identify that in, in a lot of the world's religions. They worship many gods. The Athenians of, of Paul's day here, many gods. Okay, you're worshiping many, many gods. The Egyptians of Exodus, they worship many gods. That They were polytheists. All right, and then you have, of course, theism. That is a world plus an infinite God, an infinite God. Now, when Paul spoke to the people of Athens here, you'll notice again in verse number 24 that he says, the God, implying one, only one, who made the world and everything in it. And th- that's a huge statement in and of itself, right? Okay, so I, I want to give you a couple of things that-, that will help us come to a more clear understanding of who God is as revealed to us in Scripture. All right, the first one is this. God can be understood in terms of who he is and what he does. God can be understood in terms of who he is and what he does. So if you continue to read here, the Apostle Paul, uh, and even to go back to the, to the second article, which we didn't read a moment ago, but, but you'll see that he is intelligent, he's spiritual, he's personal, he's holy, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, God is infinite. Okay, so let's put on the brakes for just a moment and come to understand something very important here. Before we go any further, we have to admit something. We are finite, we are limited, God is infinite. He is not in any way limited. He's not constrained by time and space. and He's not limited in any way. God is infinite. We are limited. God is not. God is God. We are not. We're not God. Okay, so, so then what does God do? Well, according to Paul again, he creates. God is the creator of the world and everything in it. He creates. He rules. Okay, so he's not, not, not removed from it like the deist would say. No, he, he rules, he redeems, he judges, he gives life, he loves, he reveals himself. So God can be understood in terms of who he is and what he does. And there's a second truth that we've got to understand today, and that's this. God desires a response from man. God desires a response from man. What would that be? Well, again, Paul says here, repentance. (laughs) Repent. You see, holy God, Scripture teaches, is very separate from sinful man. Okay, we're at odds with one another. And the only way, according to Scripture, that we can be reconciled to holy God is through repentance and confession of our sin and turning to faith in Jesus Christ. God came in the flesh. Now, some people struggle with this. They're like, wait, God... God came. God, God moved into the neighborhood, as they say. God came like with clothes on. And yes, and he gave his life so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could have relationship with him. And that says a lot about who God is as revealed in Scripture. Repentance. What's another proper response? Love. We love because he first loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So a proper response would be to love God. Love God. How about obedience? Uh, Worship. We believe that worship is a response to who God is and what God has done. 
Now, don't, don't miss the importance of both of those because sometimes it's easy for us to just worship God and to be grateful for the things he has done for us. Okay, as if God's some sort of a you know, cosmic bellhop and he's just waiting on our needs and serving us and you know, those kinds of things. And so we can quickly then only respond in gratitude for what God has done, but we're also told in Scripture that we're to worship God for who he is. God is holy. God is just. You know, pe- people are quick today to describe God as, as love or as loving. God's word tells us God is love. But you know that God is, is described more times in Scripture as holy than he is as being love? God is holy. And so how do we respond to that holiness? Well, we respond to that holiness in worship, in adoration, in reverence because of God's self-disclosure. So God can be understood in terms of who he is and what he does, and he desires a response from man. Let's go back to those two questions for just a moment. Does God exist? Now, certainly there are some arguments that could be used. If you're, if you're having a conversation with somebody and maybe you've determined in the course of that conversation that they're uncertain about their belief in God and maybe a little confused and those kind of things, there are a number of different arguments that a person can rely upon even outside of Scripture itself that would indicate to us and, and, and point to God as creator and a lot of the things that we see described here in Scripture. Uh, and there, there's names for those. You've got the, um, the, the teleological argument uh, you appeal to design and, and some of those things that we've already talked about. There's a, a moral argument that you could refer to. How is it that people have kind of this sense within them that certain things are wrong and other things maybe not? You know, how, how is that? Um, and so there's those different arguments that we can use. There's the cosmological argument, um, a, a argument from creation itself, and, and those kinds of things. But, but then again, we've got to ask this question, what is God like? Well, according to God's word, God is a trinity we serve a triune God, a triunity. One in essence, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And over the next few weeks, we're going to break each of those down and look at them individually. But, but why is that so critical? Why is that so important? Because it's what sets biblical Christianity apart from most of the other world's religions. That's why I told you last week, some group comes knocks on your door, you're uncertain about who they are, what they believe. One of the first things you should ask them is, what do you believe about the divinity of Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus? Was he just a good prophet, good teacher, revolutionary leader? Or do you believe that he was, in fact, God come in the flesh? Okay, that, that's, that's very, very important. Now, you've probably seen people or heard people try to use different uh, human illustrations of the Trinity, you know, like the egg, for example. You've got the shell and the white of the egg and then the yolk. All of those break down. That, those really are not good illustrations of the Trinity. What you end up with a lot of times is what's called modalism. Okay, because you can't take the yolk of the egg and say the yolk is the egg, right? But when you have the Trinity, you can say of the Father, He is God. You can also say at the same time of the Son, He is God. You can also say of the Holy Spirit, He is God. Okay, three persons, one essence. That is the Trinity. And then then there are attributes of God. Okay, we're familiar with some of the attributes of God. I've already mentioned some here this morning. Talked about God's holiness. Okay, but what we've got to understand is that some of those attributes are incommunicable, which means that they are reserved for God and God alone, and others are communicable. We can see them, hopefully, by the grace of God in ourselves. 
Okay, so think of some of the ones that are incommunicable, that set God apart from all others. Okay, God is omniscient. We said that a moment ago. God is all-knowing, has full and complete knowledge. Okay, past, present, and future. Okay, that, that cannot be said of any other. Okay, God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God has all power. Okay, that is all power to do any and everything that would not, uh, that would not compromise his nature. Okay, so don't, don't stand around, you know, arguing with people about whether God can lie or not. No, God cannot lie because God will not lie because that's against God's nature. Okay, but God is all powerful. All right. God is God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere present all the time. And sometimes people think that that's an attribute that Satan has. Satan's everywhere. No, Satan's not everywhere. Satan is not omnipresent in the way that God is. Okay, And so those are some of the incommunicable attributes of God. But then there are some that are communicable. In fact, we're told in Scripture to be holy as God is holy. Now, we can't do that with perfection, right? But we're to strive to be holy because God is holy. Uh, we're told to, uh, to, to be truth tellers. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God is truthful. God is God of truth. God cannot lie, okay? Uh, we're, we're told to, to demonstrate mercy and love and grace to our fellow man and our family members. And where do all those things come from? Those are attributes of God that are communicable. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, those things, where does all that come from? It's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? For a reason. Those are communicable attributes. Okay, then we could talk for a long time about the names of God. We're not going to go into that today, but uh, we, we know in Scripture, the Old Testament, you have Elohim, you've got uh, the name Adonai, you've got, uh, you've got Yahweh, um, the various names of God, and, and, and what do those names mean to us? Um, he's called Abba Father in the New Testament. I, I, I love the names of God there, and someday we'll look at those individually. But as we conclude today, I want us to, to very quickly break down what it is that is said here in the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 2. All right, very important. Number one, there is one and only one living and true God. One and only one living and true God. Now, that's significant because it is an absolute rejection of atheism and polytheism. Remember, we talked about those seven views of God, basically where you're going to see in some of these statements a refutation and, and a rejection of the other six. Okay, The one and only living and true God is intelligent, spiritual, and personal. He is creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler. That is a rejection of pantheism, panentheism, and deism. Now here's the thing of the various world's religions. Some will contend and hold very strongly to the thought that God is transcendent. Okay, He is he's, he's out there even to the degree that he wants to have no relationship with us whatsoever. All right, And so they would focus entirely upon the transcendence of God. You've got others who want to focus entirely upon God's eminence. Okay, that, that, that it's all about fellowship with God or it's all about being able to know, but, but to the exclusion of his transcendence. That's what sets biblical Christianity apart because we believe that the Bible teaches God is both transcendent and eminent. God is very different from us. God rules and reigns supreme over his entire creation. 
Okay, he is God and we are not. But the amazing thing is the God of the Bible, the one and true living God, wants to have relationship with us. A lot of the people of the world can't fathom that concept of God. They have no understanding of a God who desires to have relationship with us and has taken the initiative in establishing that relationship by coming himself in the flesh to die for you and me. You see, the Bible makes it clear that in our sinfulness, we are at odds with God. Okay? We need to be reconciled. Okay? So there's a problem there. Okay? People think, well, I've got to then be good enough to be reconciled to God, be acceptable to God. And so they try in their best efforts to be good enough, only to discover that you can't be good enough. Yeah, they think, well, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try some of that and some of Jesus. And I'll try, no, no, it's, God says, the only way that you can be reconciled to me is through trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He has taken the initiative to, to reconcile us to himself. The one and only living and true God is infinite in holiness and all of their perfections. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, so God has no beginning or end. He lacks nothing. He is perfect and pure with no taint of sin or evil of any kind. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creation. That's a rejection of finite and open theism. And the ideology behind those is that there are some things that God doesn't know as it relates to the future. So like God may at some point go, ooh, didn't see that coming. But we don't believe that. That's not what, that's not what Scripture teaches. We believe that God is all-knowing. He knows past, present, and future. Okay, so again, God's not ever going to go, oh, wow, didn't see that. Mm-mm. The one and only living and true God rightly deserves, here's our response now, remember, our love and obedience. So to give any of that kind of devotion to any other person or any other thing is to commit what the Bible calls idolatry and violates the first commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. So it doesn't have to be some kind of idol that you fashioned with your hand or that you carved out. It can be anything and everything that you put before God. There will be a lot of people worshiping today in huge temples that seat thousands and thousands of people. And they'll be cheering for their favorite team. Okay, I'm not anti-sports. I, I, I'm a Cowboy fan and all that. But I'm going to tell you that, that particularly in America, we got a lot of people worshiping the God of sport. There's a lot of people today worshiping entertainment, worshiping amusement, worshiping the dollar, worshiping all kinds of stuff. And if we're not very, very careful, then those things become idolatrous to us. The one and only living and true God is utterly unique, utterly unique from the theological conceptions of all other religions. The Bible reveals him to be a trinity of three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet still one, a unity. So the biblical witness is really clear. Whatever it is that constitutes God as God, the Father is all of that. The Son is all of that. The Holy Spirit is all of that. But there is still only one God, distinct in person, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Now, can I fully explain that to you? No. I can't. In fact, the Bible doesn't even really explain it to us. It describes it for us. 
by faith, I accept that. That our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then finally this morning, the one and only living and true God is personal and more. In other world religions, like Buddhism again, God is less than personal. Okay? Only transcendent in their mind. Islam views God as utterly transcendent, but unapproachable. They can't conceive of a God that we could, that we could come to and have a personal relationship with. Right? Mysticism, the New Age movement, they see God as, as wholly eminent. And so that's why they're always feeling God, you know, that kind of thing. You know, got to get in touch, got to, you know, be in tune with nature and those sorts of things. Okay, that's, that's what you find in, in mysticism and the New Age movement, that kind of thing. But the Bible says that the one true God is both transcendent and eminent. He's above us, separate from us, and yet he is also a God who can be known, truly, genuinely known in a personal relationship. So, you say, well, does it really matter what we believe about God? It matters a lot what we believe about God. In fact, the most important thing about each and every one of us is what we believe about God and what we believe about how we relate to God. Right? So, for you this morning, maybe it brings you some comfort to think of God as that comforter on your bed. A God who is wholly consumed with your comfort and your happiness. That's not a complete picture of who God is, according to Scripture. Maybe for some of you, he's, that, he's a utilitarian God. You want to know he's close by in, in the event that you need him. But apart from that, you don't have an ongoing, daily, vibrant relationship with him. Or do you view God the way that the Bible describes God? As infinite as holy, as omniscient, as omnipotent, omnipresent, and yet at the same time desires to have relationship with us. Well, if that's your view, the big question today is simply this. What's your response to holy God? Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.